1: Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, great pyramids, spectacular monuments and other superstructures were celebrated as wonders of the world. Unlike Days of the Week and Deadly Sins, there were always seven of them. More recent Magnificent Sevens have included more modern man-made marvels such as Machu Picchu, the Taj Mahal, or wonders of nature such as the Grand Canyon and the Great Barrier Reef. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast, and the guest I'm asking today is the comedian, actor, activist, politician, long-distance runner, Eddie Izzard. For 30 years or so, Eddie has been established as a remarkable and distinctive comedian who's gone on to act in a variety of films and TV dramas, as well as performing stand-up comedy in a variety of foreign languages. Throw in multiple marathons, raising money for good causes, and being gender fluid even before the term was in common use. Eddie, you are something of a wonder yourself, aren't you? Oh, well, that's very nice <laughs> of you to say that, um, Clive. I, I, well, actually,
2: you know what? What I've tried to do with my life is I've tried to do things that make that impress me, that astound me, so that I go, "Oh, who the hell did that? Yeah. Oh, that was me. Oh, oh, that's okay. I will spend." some time with that person because I'm living in their head. Yeah. Um, so I, I just needed to do things that made me draw breath. Um, and initially they, they weren't so much like that, you know, younger years, you just like go to the toilet or <laughs> uh, buy a Mars bar, not terribly interesting. So I, I thought I'd better yeah. overreach somewhat. And um, well, I, yeah, they've got more impressive down
1: the years. I remember you, I wouldn't say overreaching, but you seem to, I mean, I've interviewed you and bumped into you over the years uh, many times, but you seem to go, it's quite suddenly from being like a street performer uh, with, you know, uh, doing a little bit of comedy here and there to suddenly you were in the West End of London. I mean, you you decided to hire a theatre yourself or did somebody push you forward? How, how did that work? No, I pushed
2: myself forward. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting analysis, you, analysis. You're the only person who's noticed this thing, I'm kind of military with my career. And when I dropped out of doing accounting and financial management with mathematics at Shefford University at 19, <laughs> I thought, right, you know, give me a year or so, and I'm on television. Going to be doing kind of like the, the route that you came because I was trying to do footlights, and I didn't do that because I decided not to work, which I thought was cooler. So I did my own route, and I thought, anyway, I'll get on the television. You know, Edinburgh Festival is going to happen, but it just did not happen. And I, well, I did three Edinburgh Festivals doing sketch comedy, uh, trying to be a Monty Python group that get picked up and taken out, and then I, I got dispirited because after three years, no one had paid a blind bit of notice. And we had no reviews that were any good. Yeah. This is a load of shabby old tat, was the kind of the Scotsman review. And it just wasn't going in the way I'd planned in my military brain. Um, I, I spent a year, 1984, just doing nothing, being in London trying to how do i start what do i start i was even thinking of starting a computer company and then i decided i should come out as being transgender transvestite transgender the language has changed over the years i just thought this is true this is me i should come out so what seemed to be a completely wasteful year turned into maybe the most useful year of my life and i probably needed that early time to come to, to build up to coming out then i came out then i thought right Let's get my career going. And I thought, okay, I'm wearing some makeup. I'm wearing a dress. I don't. I'm not doing drag. And everyone thought, oh, this is drag. No, it's not drag. They are our cousins, but we're trans. You know, trans. The word wasn't really there. Transgender. The idea was there. So I sort of went. Put I, I in boy mode, as I call it. I went onto the streets of London. I started doing street, and and then. It took me ages to get that working, and I almost lost all my – I did lose all my confidence, rebuilt it, then got it going, went solo, and then I thought stand-up's where I need to be because that's closer to sketch comedy. Then I started doing stand-up like Richard Pryor and Billy Connolly, and then that started working. And by that time, this is to answer, the long answer to your question, I, I thought I, I don't want to do telly because telly just keeps yeah, – it has been my holy grail, and I don't think it is anymore. I need to do theatre, and I need to do West End, and I and I and I planned it meticulously. I got it so that I was playing all the comedy clubs by 1990, 1991 and I at the comedy store at Christmas weekend. Then I nineteen ninety two was I was just playing theatres in London, the Bloomsbury, the Wimbledon Theatre, Hackney Empire, and then uh, theatre up in in, in uh, on the Edgware Road for two weeks. And then I thought I'll stay out of London for six months and then I'll play the West End as a sort of this is my arriving. I'm doing my, my TV show, but it's not a TV show. It's a West End thing. So I planned it. We raised the money together with uh, my partner Peter Harris at the time, and and um, we said we will do this. And it's not wasn't usual. You had to do a TV show to be able to do West End, and I was going to do it without TV yeah. and just do it from word of mouth. And it kind of and it worked. And then I built up from there. So that's my long answer to this no, short question. Well, but I, it was.
1: Planned meticulously. I can see I haven't got much to do in this podcast. I could just ask what couple of short questions and we have the <laughs> whole thing done. I just want to ask you on the on the trans uh, front, because, just so that people know the journey you've been on. Uh, I'm, I, as I remember you, and I may have got this wrong, you you were kind of a male uh, comedian who said, "Well, if I want to wear a dress, I'll, I'll wear a dress." I, in, and as you say, that became well. You know, the word was transvestite, but now, uh, and you kind of sometimes seem to be male, sometimes female, but but now do you completely identify as female now? Is that is that your...
2: No, I would say I've been gender... I knew I was... There was something going on when I was about four or five. That's when I first thought, oh, this girl's wearing a dress. I'd like to wear a dress. Oh, everyone else is saying that's wrong, but I think that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to express myself that way, but I also like... I, I couldn't appreciate it that I couldn't be that objective, but the boy side of myself also seemed there because I like playing football. But now, as we know, because the weekend has just passed, where the England women's team has done fantastically well against a fantastic German team, we should say, who didn't have their best player playing, but still, you know, put a really tough team. Um uh, and the England women's team. No disrespect to them, absolute respect to them because it's great. I just love women playing great football, and they can play great any sport they want. They can be in special forces now. They can run countries. They can run businesses. All those things that we that men have been blocking women from do to do. They can now do. So I thought my football playing was a very boyish thing, but in fact it's a, an athletic thing more than a, a boyish thing. Yeah. So I identified. I I could see this this thing that I wanted to. Come out! I'll try and make this short so it doesn't go on forever. Um, um, and when I came out, I was trying to put words out that were better than "I am a transvestite" because that Latin word just sounded so negative, such negative connotations with it. Basically, people thought I was a toxic person, a wrong person. I was outside society, so I was trying to say, "Look, I'm wearing a dress. Women wear trousers. Why can't I wear a dress? What is the big deal?" Mm-hmm. So I tried to de-escalate it initially, but I knew. This definition of trans, transgender, I knew that's kind of where I was, but I am gender fluid. I, I think I have the gift of, of boy genetics and girl genetics. We know that we are girls in the fetus, and then some of us get coded boys, the nipples are there because they could have been breasts, the ovaries become testes, you know, it's all the same human unit, just some of us go one way or the other, and a lot of us are mixed, and we get obsessed with, are you a boy, are you a girl, because we get brought up that way, but tigers don't give a damn what sex or sexuality we are, if they attack us, then tigers are going, it's a very tasty human Uh is it a boy or a girl, is it she, her he, I don't care, they're tasty, but basically, I'm, I'm now just representing a base as a trans woman, but I can express myself as in boy mode if I wish, and I'll play a male role if I wish, because these are my genetics. That's the gift I was given. I've just been honest about it. Yeah. And I came out the same time that Boris Johnson was doing Bullingdon Club. So I tried the honesty way, and he tried the lying bastard way. So, <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, yes.
1: what I say. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, certainly as an actor, it uh, gives you uh, plenty of flexibility. I, I, I was doing something with you, uh, I think it must have been before Christmas, and you were definitely, uh, you know. You know, representing yourself as a woman, and then the next thing I saw you on the television. wearing a dress. You yeah, were wearing a dress certainly, but the next thing I saw you on television, and you were playing a male part. So you, you know, you've you've got it—the uh, best of both worlds. Well,
2: I can play male roles and trans roles. Yeah. Well, male roles and trans roles—I think I can do that. Okay. Uh, um, there's a lot of politics obviously swirling around. So I will play trans, I will play Meroles and that's 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 my area, but try like a trans woman wrong. So that's what I have freedom to do, I feel.
1: Alright, well look, let's get on to your wonders of the world. Now your first Wonder of the World is the city of Edinburgh. Now is this the the architecture, the history, is it the the fringe, the festival, the rock or the tattoo? What what is it you like about Edinburgh? It it's it's the rock, it's the
2: the centre of the of the Super Volcano. I like this. You see, I I mentioned this thing. I I wanted to be in the Cambridge Footlights because half of Python went in. I thought all of Python went in, but no, half went to the Oxford Review. So I was obsessed by this. You were in
1: the Footlights, I believe. I was. was I'm right right in thinking that. (laughs) Uh, You're you're quite right in thinking But I wasn't in Monty Python, which you kind of have become in Monty, but you've done quite a lot of stage performances and bits and bobs with uh, Monty Python. So you got there uh, right there in the end.
2: I have done bits and bobs with but They are my uh, gods on Mount Olympus. No matter what they do in life, they're all on Mount Olympus. Mm. And I am just hacking my way up the mountain, trying to <laughs> trying to brush dust off their feet. All right. So um, that's how I say And you guys who went to the Footlights were also like that. So, um, uh, yeah, so Edinburgh, for me, you see, I, I – getting to Sheffield, I wasn't – uh, in the Footlights, but the Shortlights went to Edinburgh. That, I thought, Edinburgh is the important thing. It doesn't matter I'm at Sheffield. And Sheffield turned into a wonderful place for me. And I had to learn everything myself, but I hitched up from, from, from Sheffield up to Edinburgh back in January of 1991. And I got to Edinburgh in the, I, got, I actually took the train for the last bit because I was a lazy bastard. And I got there and Edinburgh was uh, like in a, in probably a February, uh, evening, uh, crisp, one of those crisp sort of winter evenings and everything lit up. The Bank of Scotland lit up and it just looked amazing. And I walked up and like, I up to the Royal Mile and I went and stayed with a friend who was in a, uh, a hall of residence at Edinburgh University. And that I went down to the fringe club the fringe office the next day to ask Alistair Moffat and Jenny Brown who were running it, what do I do? How do I how do I get this thing? How do I get my career going? And and Edinburgh just has meant a lot of me. I did twelve Edinburgh festivals over thirteen years. It has this this seven, you know, seven levels. It's a high rise buildings when there weren't any high rise buildings. It it is part of a volcano. Arthur's seat is this is the I believe the plug of the super volcano. And um, it's just such dramatic uh, topography. I just, uh, I loved it and hated it, to be honest. Edinburgh, it gave me a tough time. Uh, you know, it took me eight Edinburgh festivals to arrive, um, or to, just to get off the ground and then about 10 to arrive really. So,
1: so it's, a, it's a mixture of good and bad in terms of what, what you had lots of, uh, did you get bad reviews, low audiences, people not understanding you, but also moments when things went well and it all clicked into place.
2: Yes, uh, that is exactly right. Your analysis again, you have very good on this analysis front. Uh yeah, first three years sketch comedy all kind of bad reviews this is a load of shabby old tat from the scotsman yeah everyone wanted a scotsman if people don't know the scotsman uh newspaper is the one one of the big newspapers in edinburgh so if you get scotsman review you were cooking with gas and we didn't get one anything the first year uh <laughs> and the second year we got one eventually and it was this is a load of shabby old tat and uh it, but it did leave a, a little a little hint in this is, but occasionally they come out with things which are and it Totally unexpected and devastatingly funny, and as you'll know from it was a, as a quote diving thing, we got it totally unexpected and, and uh, totally unexpected, and devastatingly funny was the quote from the Scotland swim for years. For ten years, I, I had to live on that because I couldn't get anything else. And so sketch comedy and then street performing, just struggling street performing. You're standing there, people just walking through your shows because you're not very good. You're not getting it going. Eighty nine, I do stand up and uh street performing and that's when i arrived when i was beginning a show on the mound a big famous area in in the middle of uh, edinburgh between Princess Street and the Royal Mile and uh, a lot of street performing there in the Edinburgh festival. I'm setting up a show and one bloke, he goes, oh, and he runs off away from my show. And I think that's an odd thing to do. He seemed a very positive, oh, then he runs away. And then I keep setting up. I had tea cozies, lots of animal tea cozies that I would set out, which looked very impressive and did nothing. And then after about two or three minutes, he drags his family. I see him dragging his family out and he plonked his family down Obviously, implying watch this. This is going to be interesting. And I thought, oh, I'm doing the improvising it thing, and it was essentially improvising muck and about, making myself interesting. And that's when I began arriving at Edinburgh. Excellent.
1: And just one more question on Edinburgh before we move on. Do you ever go there, or have you ever been there, sort of outside festival time, um, either to do a separate show or just to visit the city? Because it's a it's a very different place when the Festival isn't door. I have indeed.
2: I've even flown my own plane. Well, I don't have my own plane. I've hired a plane and flown into Edinburgh airport um, uh, and stayed in Edinburgh uh, out of fringe time. And after 1993, I refused to play Edinburgh except in normal time because I always thought half of London was up in Edinburgh and I wanted to meet real Edinburgh people. So I've been there many times. I've campaigned in Edinburgh. I have run marathons up and through Edinburgh. Um, I have uh, yeah been there a number of times and now I'm a patron of the Fringe Festival so I'll be going up there more often probably in Fringe time and out of Fringe time but right. um, so I, I have this I have this strong relationship with Edinburgh This is Edinburgh's High Street It'll be day two of the 2022 Edinburgh Fringe Festival the biggest performing arts festival in the world That's the box office of what I'm assured sells more tickets than any other world event, apart from two things, the Olympics and the Football World Cup. And this
1: is on every year. Let's move on to your uh, next wonder, which is the song right said fred
2: the song right said fred uh, as you will know probably a lot of people of a certain age will know uh the great bernard cribbins who's just passed away yes and a salute to bernard Cribbins here. great actor They did many great roles in many different things including the railway children which is now releasing in a, a new one but anyway bernard cribbins did a song i think in the 60s maybe early 70s called right said fred there was a band called right said fred named after the song but that's not what we're talking about here it's really right Fred. it's about two workmen maybe three workmen who are trying to do something in a house so they, they failed to do it. they drink a lot of tea while they're doing it yeah. but if anyone knows the songs so it's kind of a it's a com- comedy kind of song anyway the izard family seem to like this Mum died when we were young and me and my brother and my father, uh, we liked this song, and it was then it was playing on the radio in the seventies. And when my father passed away in twenty eighteen, my brother said, "We're going to play Right Said Fred at his funeral." And so we thought, "This is a." G-. I thought, "Yes, good idea." As we were going out, ha- have the whole funeral, not religious ceremony. At the end, we walk out to Right Said Fred. Do uh, the weird thing that happened, and Dad would have loved this. Is the the uh, present, presenter, the uh, memorializer who was, who was hosting it said, uh, this song obviously meant a lot to uh, Harold uh, Izard, uh, right, said Fred, by Bernard Cribbins, and so we'll now play it. And he, she, she pressed, well, someone pressed the button. The music started playing. If you can imagine a funeral. I started getting up to leave, to encourage everyone to leave now. But then there was a thing, no, 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 we we've got to listen to the song as if it was a piece of Mozart. And so everyone was listening to Right Said Fred in this contemplative kind of manner. I go, no, this is not how it's supposed to be. And I, was, I kind of argued quietly with my brother. Shouldn't we just walk? Can't we just walk out? So I, about 30 seconds of sitting there. And then I just said, we've got to walk out. Otherwise, this has all gone a bit pear-shaped. And uh, then we walked out and it was all fine. But I just love the idea that everyone was sitting, thinking about the dulcet tones, Bernard Cribbins, singing right said Fred, it's just such a silly, funny song uh, to have at the end of his funeral. So that's well, well, that's my wonder of the world.
1: Well, I think that that's a charming reason. I mean, I just so the listeners understand the the where how this podcast works. You had given me a list of your wonders, and you uh, sent them over to me, and that was a, a a day or two before Bernard Cribbins died. So it was a sort of an odd yes. and I suppose in many ways uh, sad coincidence, but uh, but it's appropriate enough. You're able to, as you say, you're clearly thinking about your father, but you're also thinking about Bernard Cribbins now because uh, he's gone away. Um, I've, I'm a bit older than you, so I, I know that it's an older song than you. See. It's not. It's 1962, I think, is when it uh, came out. There used to be lots of songs. Oh, really? That, yeah, it was. Used to be songs like that on the radio for. There was a program called Junior Choice, and um, there was. Um, Sort of, sort of comedy songs that, uh, well, children like me like to listen to. And it was done especially for us. So there were Three Wheels on My Wagon, Hole in the Ground, another Bernard Cribbins one, Right Said yes. Fred. Lo- loads of them. And uh, But a very, a very uh, interesting one to choose at your uh, funeral because um, Right Said Fred is all about, I think it's a piano they're moving around, but it could just as well be a, a coffin uh, being carried in an awkward way. So that it might have gone horribly wrong if people had been trying to lift the, the coffin up at the time the music was playing, but perhaps you'd got beyond that.
2: I, I think you're coming up with the coffin analogy. I think it's still a piano. It's just, it's more the sentiment of the thing. Yes, it could have been a coffin, but it's uh, oh. just more the idea. The cup of tea, everything goes wrong and they have a cup of tea. That's a very yeah. British sentiment.
1: yes. And he, I, I just well, well, since Bernard Cribbins has just gone, um, there was something quality of his voice that seemed to appeal to sort of young people, but everybody, but particularly young people. There's sort of a charm to his just way of speaking, wasn't there? Yeah,
2: I, I think he was. He could sort of play any character that he wanted to, and. Uh... And I, I, I met him once. I met him at Spike Melligan's memorial, um, and I had a quick chat with him. I think that's the only time I really had a chat with him. I think he was in, wasn't he in the the, the the in the forces in the war or in Paris or something? Anyway, he yeah. just he just it was a, a he had a human quality to, to him that uh, I think resonated. And in Faulty Towers, he played a very unburned crimson kind of character and a very annoying person, which um, it's quite a. Actually if anyone watches Faulty Towers and watches the episode with Bernard Cribbins John please um uh, I've, I've studied John's career very closely and John would really commit to physical stuff. And he's really, when he's, when he's trying to encourage Bernard Cribbins not to talk, he's really is holding his mouth very strongly. I think Bernard was having difficulty. He's supposed to be acting. He couldn't breathe. And I, don't, I think he had a problem to actually do the actual breathing thing as well. John would go for it. There's yeah. a, you might've seen this client. Yeah. There's an early one of, of uh, the frost report, I think with, um, um, uh, the two Runnies. Uh, so it's Ronnie Corbett and John please pokes Ronnie Corbett really hard and you can see Ronnie Corbett go whoa that <laughs> you really almost knocked my heart out yeah. there. there uh, because John just committed and would it just he, he does commit with his physical comment. Yeah
1: well with uh, playing Manuel uh, the waiter was uh, not an easy task either he was being hit on the head wasn't he. Um, I, I was going to ask you about your father but perhaps we'll do your yeah. next wonder. Uh, at the same time uh, as, as we're, we're doing that, because your next one is Little Aiden. Um, now, this t- tell us about Little Aiden. Yes, this, this is somewhere you lived as a child. Uh, is that right? Yes,
2: well, that's where I was born. I was yes. born in in uh, the British name Little Aiden. I think it's Al- Al-Gadir in Arabic. Um, is where the area is called. It it if you look if you any find photos of Little Aiden, you could if you do it from about 19 it'd be late 40s early 50s it's it's a, an expansive desert it's just absolute pure sand desert and then bp oil company wanted to build a refinery they obviously bought it and plonk they built the refinery built the town built shops built a hospital which my mum worked in she came out as a nurse and met my dad their dad was an accountant in the encounter accounting building so it, it was just a town was poof, landed in with with traffic lights everything um and it's got the cathedral mount behind it. It's a lunar landscape. Mm. I was born on this lunar landscape and... And it was, the, the dad was there eight years. The family was there eight years. I was only there one year at the end of thing. My brother was born there three years before. Mum was there five years. So it, it means a lot to us. And Aden, Arden is how it's pronounced in Arabic. We, we called it Aden because we couldn't pronounce Ah. Uh, I think, we British people. As we took Aden, we took it in our colonial way. Yes, we'll have that thing. It's like taking Southampton. We just took a port city because we had a lot of stuff that we got from India, and we wanted to bring it back, and it needed a deep, water port, but they, they built this, the refinery is nothing to do with the history of that, but it's just kind of amazing. The place it's now, uh, run by the Yemeni people, but they're having a civil war. So I, I just kind of got a lot of affection for Aden, and what it did for us, for the Izzard family. Mm. And, and I try and do as much as I can to help them, but it's, it's kind of an amazing place. We went back there in 2008. So we saw the place where mum in a, in the little Aden dramatic society played, um, uh she did aladdin at christmas panto in 1958 and all these things all my my performing career comes from mum. all the comedy comes from dad the performing career comes from mum. so it, it just meant a lot to us mm. little aden and the city of aden and yemen
1: so you mentioned so your father was an accountant working for bp and, and traveling the world to, the, to that extent but but you say he was funny you, you got your comedy from him and was it so is he like bernard cribbins was he sort of charming in that way or making lots of jokes or, or how did it work
2: he dad made jokes uh, uh he would i i do very similar things to dad he would he would watch okay this is the typical thing that dad would do so you'd have something like starsky and hutch on and they're chasing a the bad guy and they get it then they get him and there's things and boom and then this bad guy ends up with his head going through uh, a telephone box through the glass mm-hmm. and he's hanging there just sort of limp either dead or very badly injured and Dad would get up and go go and get a coffee or something, go and get a cup of tea. And he, as he walked out, he'd say, he's not happy, is he? <laughs> you know, he'd do these kind of – he'd throw these comments in at the end yeah. of <laughs> this guy, the rag doll hanging out of a broken window. Hey, eh, he's not happy, that guy. Um, so Dad would do the ironic comments. Um, it was like a triple act. I do remember I was uh, – Dad would make a comment, then my brother would make a comment, then I'd make a comment, then Dad – me brother it it, it just it was like a triple act i remember phoning someone saying i was in a triple act a a minute ago and now it's turned into a double act i could hear them (laughs) carrying on doing jokes to each other and then i came back down and went back to a triple act and it was it's lovely to know that that yeah similar humor dad couldn't quite work out how i could make a living out of doing the humor thing but i think he i think he was happy about it if slightly bemused that it actually turned into a living well at least
1: at least you'd done a bit of accountancy along the way so you could look after your own finances uh, either in bad times or even more importantly sometimes in good times to make sure the money was being accounted for between you and your agent manager a production company, or whatever it is
2: yes i would you would think that i would i actually am a natural accountant. this is the slightly scary <laughs> thing or not the scary thing or sad thing or whatever, but I can add up i don 't actually spend a lot of time doing it, but actually i 'm now doing a performance of um Uh, Great Expectations a one woman performance of Great Expectations playing 21 of the 28 characters in Dickens' great masterwork and it's because of my natural accounting brain that I did this
1: It's uh, Your Uh, accounting brain told you it's cheaper to have one person performing all the parts and then all the parts played separately by by, um, actors needing pay
2: well that's no that's a good point you would think that but this is actually quite beautiful because normally a cat, you're, an accountant in a in a pr- project you know a film project whatever would say you know L- cut down the thing out less budget on this don't pr- do that. but but it was spun around on this i this is the, the, my little tiny story is that I, i'm severely typically dyslexic so i don't read because it takes me forever i audio book everything and then i realized i'd never read a work of literature so i thought why don't I pay? Because audio books are on the rise now, and podcasts, as you are doing one right now. Why don't I get a company to see if they might pay me to read a work of literature? Mm. Right. And I'm 150 years to the day younger than Dickens. So seventh of February, eighteen twelve. Seventh of February, nineteen sixty two. So I thought, let's go with Dickens. What do you guys think? This this company uh, came out and said, "We'll we'll we'll back you." You know, it's not a huge amount of money, but it's, but it's great. But they paid me, and they said, "Do great expectations." Uh, it's a it's a one of the top books of his. And once they paid me, I had to do it. Mm. So the money forced me to read the book. This is the beautiful thing. I sat for 20 hours. It's 20 plus hours a book. And I sat there for three weeks and I think reading all, every single word of great expectations because I was forced to by myself. Which I just thought was kind of beautiful, and then I started doing a performance to back up the audio book that's there. So oh. it's it's I, that all comes from this accounting part of me saying this is the way to get you to read the book. Well,
1: that's a brilliant, brilliant way to do it. Though, of course, Dickens has lots and lots of characters, and if you're putting on a voice for each character, to, uh, you've got to remember because they come back again. You know, 150 pages later, um, then you know, how, you know. Who who are we doing with Peggy or somebody? You've got to remember what voice you had to put on.
2: (laughs) No, that's absolutely true, Clive, but um, I do, because uh, I must admit there's no particular character in this that goes away and doesn't come back for 800 pages. Um, Or if they have, I've done them a lot at the beginning and then they come back. So. If it's Joe Gargery doing that, or if it's, if it's Magwitch going, oh, do you know what you're doing, I'll cut your throat. I know that I've got to stay in there. And when he, he, don't, he actually, he doesn't come back to ages. And what yeah. he does is my boy, my boy, you know, um, trying not to do fake in there, but uh, <laughs> just, uh, yeah, you, you, you do have to try and, that, that is the thing, try to keep the characters um, yeah. together.
1: I, the last time I had a conversation with you, I, th- I think you said you were doing a one person Hamlet um so is this is this a yes is that is that a project as well are you got a lot of one person projects if you're yes they all go ahead i'm
2: calling them one woman uh just because it's because i'm a trans woman. one well, base is a trans woman now but um well it yes i mean no one would i was trying to play do uh, Shakespeare, no one was I wasn't top of the list obviously as a trans person and uh, ex street performer comedian having come from accounting, I'm not the top of their list of come on let's get this person to do Hamlet and I thought I'd like to lead up to Hamlet, but I just thought let's let's just go for it. And it's it's not the right way to go about it. But I'm, we're doing open rehearsals. That's the interesting thing. So people have come along. there I've d I did act one out of the five acts. And then people came along with Q&A. What bits do you like? What do you hate? Are, you, are the characters confusing? And so we're building it up that way, doing open rehearsals, which they do in opera um, a lot. and But they don't do much in theatre. So it's a very interesting project that people are finding intriguing. It's at least intriguing. And we'll see how it all turns out. To be or not to be. That is the question
1: whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them all right, now, your next wonder um, we should have gone straight into from little Aden, but uh, never mind because you, you you then go to the South Downs now, I know uh, just so as I can. Um, Put my two pennies in here. I know you've lived in a variety of places. Uh, little Aden, you were born in, but you've lived in Northern Ireland, Wales, I think, South Downs. Is that when did you get to the South Downs in, in life?
2: I was seven when I arrived at South Downs. So from seven to 18, I'm right next to South Downs in Eastbourne. So Eastbourne. And Bexhill, which is a little to the east, about twelve miles along. So, if people don't know geography uh, of this area, uh, Hastings, Battle of Hastings—that's a place. Brighton is a very well-known city for people listening around the world. Um, so, it's right down the south coast, directly, kind of directly south of London. And these twin towns are kind of my heritage because granddad uh, was born, my granddad was born in uh, Eastbourne, and my grandmother was born in Bexhill on. That's on my dad's side. My mum's side was more Kent, uh, Kent heritage. And, um, uh, yeah, so Eastbourne, South Downs, if you've never been, I, there's a school called uh, uh, um, Bead School, and it's right by the beginning of the South Downs. The South Downs start. They actually just start. It's very weird. There's a little kiosk next to it, which I love and I go to a lot. There's a school, there's a kiosk, and then the South Downs go, boom, they just go up. Um, and it's obviously years ago uh, chalk came up from pressure from underground uplift and it just uplifts at that point and they're wonderful and you could there's the South Downs Way which I have run marathons along um, it, it, it's rolling hills it's a, it's a national park so you can't really build on it anymore which is wonderful so it still looks as it did in the old days and it can be really windswept and cold and barren and beautiful and I kind of love it in the way that Dickens loved the marshes that mm. Great Expectations was built on the marshes of his childhood so Oh, I I love it. I call it my downs, my south downs. So they're
1: the sort of croce, closely cropped kind of grassland, hill, hills, rolling hills rather than sharp mountains. But we, but uh, the the white cliffs of Dover. It's the same chalk there, isn't it? That's that's the sort of. Uh, so there's not much depth of soil.
2: Not much depth of soil. No, they used to have farms and, and and sheep and herds up there, which they don't anymore. The cliffs are majestic. There are the Seven Sisters, which are uh, and the Cookmere Valley. Which I went to visit as a kid, but if you see, if you everyone Google's the Seven Sisters Cliffs, it just looks amazing, and a lot of Battle of Britain film, the British film, was shot over the top of the Seven Sisters, right next to my school. They're just they're dangerous as well because they crumble and 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 you know deaths happen. People unfortunately commit suicide. Beachy Head, is this famous mm-hmm. uh, point that a lot of planes in World War Two used to used to triangulate off because it's very visible and it sticks out and. Um, uh, but it, so it's majestic and dangerous. The whiteness of the cliffs, just like the cliffs of Dover, but our cliffs, the Seven Sisters, and those just uh, are kind of fantastic. And I even managed to do a film where I we filmed a- along those cliffs, and uh, I was playing on the beaches where I used to play as a kid. I was acting on the beaches where I used to play as a child. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 just got this majesty and danger and uh, the the whiteness of the cliffs are just stunning and and then there's the rolling hills and the beacons the Ditchling beacons the beacons were all there for when when Napoleon was going to invade we were going to light the beacons just like they did in the lord of the rings don't know where he got that from <laughs> um old tolkien in there so so you've
1: you mentioned you started life in Little Aden, uh, but Southdown sounds like that, that feels like home to you. But you did spend some time in, I think, following your father's work in Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland, and uh, Wales. Uh, but, but those were, did, did you feel at home there at the time, or was it always much a sort of staging post? We're not going to be here for long. We're going to be moving on to another school soon.
2: No, uh, I don't know how it is for other kids, but every time I got somewhere, we thought we were going to be there forever. And Northern Ireland, I have an autobiography called Believe Me. Mm. And in that autobiography, I, there was a chapter on Northern Ireland. And mum was still alive, you see, when we were there. She died soon after we left. So I said to my brother, I was, I was doing gigs in Spanish in Madrid at the time, which I'm very proud of. Anyway, it's just kind of fun that my brother was there because he, he speaks very fluent Spanish. And I, I was, so I was chatting to him about this book that I was proofreading. And I said, What should we call the Northern Ireland? What should I call the Northern Ireland chapter? Should I call it My Time in Northern Ireland? And my brother said, No, call it, call it Wonderland. And mm-hmm. um, because that's what it was for us. Northern Ireland was wonderland. We loved it. Mm-hmm. We bloody loved it. And we didn't know about the troubles that were coming up because we left in 67. We were 64 to 67. We didn't know about the undercurrent of the Protestant country. We had no idea of that because we were very young. But we played with the kids, Mum was alive, Dad was alive, we'd have picnics would go along the Donegadee Road. We talked like this, three, four, five. I we were just in at school yeah. we, in the Ballet Home Primary School we were going to that and talking like this. And at home Mum was saying, No, you have gotta speak English at home. So we talked with an English accent. Mummy could have a glass of lemonade and then when it was out it was Mother, can I have a glass of lemonade? No. <laughs> oh no, I'll just I'll talk oh English, yes, okay. So we didn't we didn't switch languages but we switched accents, which I didn't know until after dad passed away he told us a, a, a work colleague who told me when i was touring in new zealand that he, dad had listened to us through the front door talking with northern irish accents outside the door which is wonderful
1: sure, that's a, be a useful thing you've got a fund of accents but you mentioned in passing then you you've done a stand-up comedy in different languages sometimes mm-hmm. if, if i got this right even in languages you don't really mm-hmm. speak you've you've worked out a way of deli- this this is another of the extraordinary things that you do, Eddie? Well,
2: my brother came up with this technique. Like, Spanish, I I have pretty good French now. And if you've got pretty good French and you've got English, then Spanish is quite grabbable. You know, French is difficile, facile, and in Spanish it's... Fácil, uh, difícil. So, with with you know, THs rather. So, they're close, but sometimes the words are completely different. But it, it just feels quite grabbable. And so, what he's, the idea we came up with was to backfill the shows. So, I went out and my first gig in Madrid, I did 58 minutes in English. And then I said, gracias. And now, on uh, my uh, uh, bath, I, I can't remember what the thing is for, for the encore. Um, But I said, now I'm going to do an extra bit in todo en español. And I did two minutes, dos minutos todo en español. Mm. So that was my encore the first day. The second day, I did cuatro minutos todo en español, then uh, seis minutes, six minutes, and eight minutes. I kept adding two minutes from the back until I had 15 minutes of English and 45 minutes of Spanish. And I learned it all phonetically. but I, you know, I could go. Los Leones. Los Leones is the lions. Uh, you know, and if you know lions, and you know in French it's les lions and Los Leones. You know, it's not too far away. Yeah, so yeah I can, no, Eddie. I, I'm going inter- to Eddie.
1: I can interrupt because I, we all do this. We all try and work out a way of speaking in a bar, in a restaurant, amongst friends, even at a yeah. dinner party. But comedy is is quite a subtle use of language. It's it's often the last thing you can get in another person's language. A a play on words, a very specific reference, getting the word exactly so that everybody in the audience hears it at the right time. That's a a, a big challenge, isn't it? To be able to do um, comedy in somebody else's language.
2: Yes, it is. But I'm very positive on Europe. I I believe in making connections rather than breaking connections. Half our country wants to break and half our country wants to make connections. The only way forward for humanity is forwards by getting to know each other, living together, working together. So I was putting my money where my mouth Mm. is. And whatever the the obstacles, I was going to go for it in French and then German and Spanish, then Arabic and then Russian is my plan. And... Uh, The two of the things you said, the play on words, I don't do any plays on words because they don't work, they don't translate very well. So I I actually block coming up with English stand-up, English speaking stand-up that is a play on words. And the other thing is references. The references trip you up. So if I'm talking about Curly Whirlies and uh, Edwina Curry and John Major and that relationship and sitting on the 159 bus to Streatham, it's not Mm going to play well in Malaga. (laughs) Um, because they're going to go, what's that bus? Where is Streatham? Who is uh, I don't know these old politicians of yours, and I don't know the curly whirly. But if you introduce them, like story technique, and say, I'm curly whirly, well, oh, in French, I just, I'm curly whirly, say, I'm baton, say, i briquet, de, 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 de nougat, de chocolat, and then you say, and then then you can hit someone with it, and je le frappe, je l'ai frappé avec un uh, curly whirly. And they, that, then they know, oh, you're hitting him with a curly whirly that you talked about earlier. So you can do anything. It's just, all you've got to do is put the effort in. It's time and effort, and I will put the time and effort in. Uh, that it's not brain, it's not rocket science. You know, you don't have to invent the language. You just got to practice it. And I am happy to do that. Happy to fail. Mm. And I, and because I came out as trans back when when I was twenty three, the sort of toughness of that, the potential humiliation of people in the street saying, "What are you dressed as? God, this is it. You're an abomination." Going through that. Thing and learning to be stoic about it means that I can now go through languages Mm -hmm. and things. And they say, This is you're not good at Spanish. I said, No, but I will get better, I will improve. Um, and that's uh, li- uh, li- little by little. Uh, petit a petit, as they say in French. Um, and uh, uh, poco a poco in Spanish. Uh, so that's what I do. And I, right this moment, I'm in Malaga learning Spanish um, and filming here as well and learning Spanish. So I just, I'm driven by it. You know, I just think it's positive. It makes, hands reaching out. Can we learn from you? Can you learn from us? But I, I love that.
1: I, I, The word driven, really, I think you've used mm-hmm. it about yourself before, but it certainly is a word that would apply to you. Driven to speak in other languages, perform in other languages. You're, uh, the, the, let's talk about the the marathon just uh, briefly. I say the marathon. How many marathons have you run to the, to the nearest hundred?
2: It's about 130 marathons or uh, probably over 130 marathons for charity now. And I've done a lot of practice marathons as well, but the actual ones for charities, so I think it's uh, 130-ish. Yeah,
1: but you do them, you know, strings of them. Uh, most people, when for, People first started doing marathons. You did, you know, you're 26 miles wherever it is, and you collapse on the floor and take three weeks to recover and six months to talk about it, and another six months to get ready to do another one. <laughs> but you do them the next day. You know, do do a marathon, then do, wake up and do another one. I would say it's easy,
2: Greg, uh, but it is because it every time I do a new set of marathons, I do. When I start off, I think, "How the hell did I do this last time?" Mm. Um, it is a determination in my head. But um, that's it. And other people have done more marathons and faster marathons, so I'm not special in this area, but I am determined. And if I I do this trick that I tell people I'm going to do it, and then I get a film company to film yeah. it, and then you'd better do it. Otherwise, it's very it's very embarrassing. Yeah. British don't like being embarrassed. Oh, I, I said I was going to do this, and I actually did half a marathon and then gave up. Yeah. That's too embarrassing. So uh, I use British embarrassment to actually get 43 marathons done in 51 days. That was the first one. And then it was 27 marathons in 27 days in South Africa. And then twenty nine in Europe and marathons on a treadmill. Oh, very bad tough to do. Marathons on a treadmill. Thirty one. Well, they all sound
1: tough to me. But when the very first one you did, did you come from a background of long distance right Were you cross country champion at your school in on the downs or in or in County Down? You know where, where...
2: The best I ever did, Clive, was I came fifth on a, on a race on the downs. And I remember my I was at a boarding school after mum died for 12 years. And I remember the housemaster standing at the top of the hill on the downs going, Oh, well done, Isai. What are you doing here? It's kind of like, what are you doing coming fifth? I think I was coming fourth and someone was just actually passing me, which is slightly annoying. But um, uh, And my dad also, I'm quite similar to my dad. He said he once won a cross-country thing when he was a... I think he was in the Navy at the time. But anyway, it's so it's no, no one likes cross country running. At, yeah. at school, I hated the idea. Yeah. But I love football, but I didn't like. Endless running, but if you do it for charity, if you say you're going to do it you have to do it, and it's quite a thing to do a marathon. No one quite, well, a lot of people don't quite know how long a marathon is, but um, they know it's tough, and so you do one and then you do one. I never go very fast, that's my trick, never very fast. All right, so then I keep energy ready for the next marathon the next day, and then the next marathon the next day, and that's how I get them done. And it's 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 great at the end. I don't like running
1: so. <laughs> It's still you had to hope that your knees can cope with it. You're 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 not going to get blisters. You're not going to you know run out of stamina. You you can't have known really this was a a definite you're going to manage to do it. But uh, as I say, it's is it sheer determination?
2: Yes, it is sheer determination. But that's not something I invented. And a lot of people in life have done sheer determination. The guy who fell down that crevasse and caught out. Um, What's the, that, the yeah. whole film about it? The guy fell down a across and he went down to go to yeah. get out and sheer determination. And it's a human, it's a, actually, it's an animal condition. And uh, we know that animals, dogs have done it and they've walked all the way back home. Um, we've see we see it in some YouTube video of a lot of bulls who are attacked by lions. And then the bulls come, uh, the, the buffalo come back and then they, they get the young buffalo back from the lions. Um, it's, it's, yeah, determination and willing to be embarrassed or screw up or things to go wrong and just carry on.
1: Let's go on to your fifth wonder, which is high heels.
2: Yes. Well, as someone who always wanted to wear high heels, it's interesting the history of high heels. Because an average male person around the world would say, well, women are naturally uh, um, tuned, naturally born uh, into into the idea that they could wear high heels, which isn't the case. Some women will never wear high heels, don't want to wear them at all. A lot of women wear them when they're younger and then wear them less and less. Um, they're kind of fun. They're kind of sexy. Uh, they make your leg look more feminine, but I like them. And I, since like once I came out, I could buy them. Um, my feet are quite small, so I can just buy regular shoes. And But the, the actual architecture of it is kind of amazing. How the hell... I don't know what they quite do inside the heel to make the heel stay there without just busting off. Mm. It is amazing. So people... I just, I find them fascinating because and they, it was the dandies, it was the dandies around the time of the Prince Regent who started wearing high heels. The men were wearing, apparently to keep out of dirt in the road, which doesn't make any sense, because, but I think to ride horses, it's, they're very good for, for riding horses, but I just think they're kind of amazing. And uh, and people will spend certain amount of dollars, pounds, euros, whatever to to, to own a pair and uh, and i go through a few pairs because i kind of wear them to death yeah but i just um i love them and i just think they look
1: very elegant well they look elegant but if if we're talking about high heels you know stiletto-y kind of you know those very high thin heels they they to the non-wearer uh they do look a bit uh, dangerous you know there, there, there's an accident there an accident waiting to happen to get stuck in a crack in the pavement to to fall over and twist your ankle yes Have you i had any problems like that and
2: Absolutely. One of the earliest times when I was coming out when I was 23, there was a corner shop opposite me, and uh, and I, I, I didn't have the guts to tell the people in the corner shop that I went in every day to get cigarettes because I was a smoker at the time. I didn't have the guts to tell them I was now trans. I was out, and I was walking past them, but they, they were on the corner. It was a corner shop, so their door was always – they left it open in the spring, summer, autumn, and they could sort of see everyone in, who was going past them, and one day I got my – Heel caught in a grating, right opposite that. Only about you know four or five days after I'd come out, and I was going, "This is not the place to get your heel caught in the grating." And I've got it caught in other gratings, and in, and you and then you, you walk forward and your shoe comes off. So it's not a perfect deal. And some women will say, "God, stuff this! I'm not going to wear that." But um, I like them and I've got the hang of wearing them. You just have to walk slower. I walk on cobblestones too. Mm. Up in Edinburgh, it's full of cobblestones, but you just, just have a s- slower, more languid walk. Mm. And if you wish, you anyone's allowed to wear anything. This is a total clothing rights for all men and all women and all citizens of the world. Yeah. That's what I think. No, no, so wear what you
1: want. I'm, I'm I. 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 Ginger Rogers, when somebody was praising Fred Astaire and her company, she famously said, yeah, well, I did the same as him. I mean I did it going backwards wearing high heels so she was stressing there that uh, you know dancing has its complications <laughs> yeah not just uh, walking uh, but i suppose if uh, if just to, to stress the fact that you're 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 trans you want you want to look as would it be fair to say as feminine as possible or to have have something like high heels on which you know makes the point rather than well
2: in a way uh, clive i have said that if i looked if if people looked at me and thought well that looks like a woman just immediately as you look at it uh, look at it look at that person mm. uh this is me in this case uh then i could wear anything and, and everyone go well this is a woman here and, and that would be fine but um my i do feel my legs because i've run a lot of marathons i i think they're kind of you know young footballers <laughs> legs or older persons footballers like <laughs> i don't like my cast i feel they're too built and with a heel it just elongates that look and it just works better um mm. So even my training shoes have high heels in them.
1: Well, right. I, I, I'm just as a word of advice, I'd, it strikes me a bit easier not to wear high heels, but not to do marathons either. Then your legs might wither away a bit or stop being so well-structured.
2: I think maybe I shouldn't do any of the things I'm doing and then I just wouldn't like myself so much. So I uh, I I am happy with myself because I'm doing these difficult things. Not the high heels thing, is just my my choice. My choice, and at some point probably the heels will get lower, but they're not that high. They're only four and a half inches because men do say every high heel shoe is a six inch heel and no one can wear no woman or man can wear six-inch heels they, unless you have the front built up as well. It's only a four, about four, four and a half you can get to before it gets impossible to walk in them. Just so oh, you
1: know. I'm making a note, so as I know when I'm next uh, thinking there about high heels to wear. <laughs> uh, th- this is all very, uh, I hope, uh, in, in a way, a sort of light uh, discussion, but uh, just, a, just a, a little bit of, not shade exactly, but seriousness. This The, the, um, the arguments that go on about uh, what trans women should be out should be able to do it's it seems to get more and more acrimonious in a way that other of these sort of um things seem to have moved quite not seamlessly but quite quite easily along though you know think about just sexuality i can remember time it was illegal and now it's it's completely acceptable but we still seem to be at a, a um an arguing point a, a really stress point it, it, you as a a, a, tr- a famous trans person who's also, um, for example, you know, good at uh, uh, marathon running. Do, do you think there's a way of resolving, you know, whether trans women should be involved in women's uh, you know, Olympic events and things like that that can satisfy everybody?
2: I don't have all the answers. Um, time is the only thing that's going to heal all this. But if you think about it, trans wasn't even being discussed when... Uh, our, gay and lesbian cousins were doing a lot of work in the sixties and seventies and eighties to try and get rights and be part of society. And they did sterling work there and trans was kind of lost and out there. And so what we're going through now, these discussions, at least that people are discussing things. They might be heated. They might be taking up entrenched views on one side or the other, but at least the discussions are happening without people saying, these people must leave the planet and go and live somewhere else. Uh, if you think about the gay, if just two gay men having sex, or maybe two lesbian women having sex, um, that was in the topic of discussion before in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And then that's gone and say, right, gay marriage now, this is the, even in America um, and a lot of places around the world. Uh, so I think there's a time when heated discussions do happen. And then hopefully we will get to a calmer place, calmer waters down the line. So, uh, yeah, it's not great that People are um, getting heated with each other. You do want fairness, um, uh, but I, I don't. I just don't have all the answers hmm. for everyone.
1: Well, just one more question. I just because a lot of people characterise this as not an original thought, is that there seems to be a lot of shouting at each other rather than karma um, kind of discussing it, and, and people get scared of saying. Saying things because they they well I don't want to be shouted at I don't want to be cancelled I want to I want to just make this point and you make your point and then we um, we might come to a resolution it's it's maybe this is just a function of political life generally that people sort of categorise people as the enemy rather than uh, the, the the person they they need to bring on board
2: yeah it's well you know social media a lot of people do shouting through social media and that's behind a firewall um. People were getting pissed off at the idea of cancellation, but, you know, the right wing have been doing counseling for many years, and it, they called it, well, it was called murder then, uh, lynchings, uh, where they're just taking people out, assassinations from the, the fascists. Um, that was their cancellation, and now people from the woke I, end of town, which is more progressive, more open-minded, being awake are saying, uh, a figurative cancellation. So nothing actually happens. It's just the idea that people getting heated online about uh, people, or maybe even in in public as well. Um, I'm not going to get that heated. Um, like, like my pronouns, I didn't change my pronouns. I was thinking of changing them. I went on a program called uh, portrait artist of the year, sky art, Very nice. Go on there. Uh, some young artists painting me, they asked me like a coffee thing. And they said, you are you she, her or he, him? And I was wearing a dress because uh, I'm based as a trans woman well, now and said, ah, she, her, if you, you know, I'll have a latte. It was that kind of, uh, very kind of lack of stress. So we did this, did the program. It went out in November about a year and a half ago. And in two days in America and Britain where I'm best known, uh, all my pronouns were changed, which is fantastic. Great honor. I've been promoted to she, and I see it as a great honor. But I'm she, her. I prefer she, her. Don't mind he, him. And um, and I'm quite going to be relaxed about it. I'm just not, it's not the time for fighting each other on this, the extreme right wing. I'm happy to fight them because they, Get up in the morning with hatred and they just push hatred out. And let's all the problems of the world seem to start with the extreme right,
1: all of them, even plumbing and bad things. <laughs> right now, uh, your sixth wonder it takes us into what strikes me a different area altogether roundabouts. Why are roundabouts the wonder ah. of your world? Is Eddie Izzard
2: well i was talking with my spanish teacher maria just this morning just before this interview and she likes roundabouts as well they are they are beautiful i know in america america has been kind of slow and, and has eyed roundabouts suspiciously what are these roundabouts god damn roundabouts they don't call them roundabouts um, um uh, but i the, the beautiful thing about them and particularly the mini roundabout is that once you build it but, and, and I'm taking the UK style of driving, because in France and uh, Spain, they have priority adroits. So you have to let people onto the roundabout in a different way. But it still works. I have driven yeah. around the Place d'Étoile and, you know, around the Arc de Triomphe in
1: Paris. And you can you can do it. You can get it done. In France, years ago, it used to be quite confusing because sometimes you gave priority to the right and sometimes you didn't. Uh, and and uh, it wasn't clear even to uh, French drivers who weren't in that area always who, who who had to give way so sometimes nobody gave way and with uh, disastrous results
2: no that is true they were they were changing it over i think plastic 12 is still droite, priority, Edouard, priority yeah. to the right and, you, and everyone stops in this big curvy line and lets yeah. people on from the right but if you forget about that if you go for what how we do it we just have a we i think we have a give way. So we don't have a stop sign. Like in America, it's a a big stop sign and and you have four people stopping. In America, everyone's looking at each other. Hey, should you go? Am I going to go? Is it your... You you got here first. Are you going? And whereas a roundabout, you come up to it and if there's no one on... Because we're on the left-hand side of the road, no one coming in from the right, if you're on the right side, they come in from the left, but if there's no one coming right next to you, you can get onto that uh, roundabout. You can go around. It keeps the traffic flowing, and there's no electricity like traffic lights and... Uh, it's just there. Once you've built it, it's there, it's there forever. And it's, it's such a beautifully simple thing. And it's not necessarily I'm in love with roundabouts per se. It's more the idea behind them. And can we not find other ideas like roundabouts that could exist in the world, things that make things flow, yeah. that once you put, put a certain amount of, of cost into it, it's just there forever. And I love the simplicity of the beautiful idea, the beautiful ideas uh, it's, it's, it's got to be beautifully simple. Simple ideas really just work wow. well. All
1: right. Um, look, we've come to your last uh, wonder of the world. And this is a wonder who's, who was, at least for a time, out of this world. It's uh, Neil Armstrong. Um, now, I can see, I think yeah. I can see why you might uh, uh, regard him as a hero. But uh, t- tell me about Neil Armstrong, the first man on the moon.
2: Well, first man on the moon. Now, Neil Armstrong... He's also representative of me, of of NASA and all astronauts. I'm, I'm going to bring all the cosmonauts in from Russia as well. Brave people who went up. Uh, forget the politics of anything, and and NASA has always tried to. Well, probably has politics behind it, but uh, it does have politics behind it. But anyway, just the, just the guys doing it, um, and the, now the women doing it, and it's great. It's brave. It's difficult. And um, when I was a kid, I was with breakfast cereal going, there, there's a space rocket. And I was there. Uh, I, I remember my consciousness kicking in around about Apollo uh, 9 or 10. That's when I said, so, Apollo 9 going to happen. It's going to do the thing. And then it's going to go around the moon. Oh my God, it did go around the moon. And then Apollo 10 going it's gonna, almost did the landing of 11. And, and I was in Bishop Stortford when Neil landed on the moon with Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins going around in the command module and it just meant a lot to me because it was us doing it it was us in fact it was them but them they, they they actually said Michael Collins said we decided to leave the american flag off the the mission patch because we wanted to do it for the world and that's kind of beautiful that's kind of beautiful. that is absolutely beautiful and the thing about Neil was his, his his he was obviously ambitious determined but calm and he survived a Mercury mission where, where the gimbal started going out and they started spinning like crazy. And he, he kept his, his coolness so that he could switch off and keep going through the switches until he worked out what the hell was going off. And in the end, he had to end the mission and, and use, start using the engines for, for reentry. And to keep that cool and do that and apply that to, uh, landing on the moon. I thought, it's just a beautiful person, a non-ego person. This person should have had the massive his ego. I am the first person to land on the moon. Look at me, look at me, look at mm. me. And he just did not do that. He was a wonderful ambassador for America, for NASA, for humanity. Um, he, I, I have this thing, one life, live it well. And he lived it very well. And he was a beautiful guy, a beautiful fella.
1: It was exciting times, was not it? Because uh, you mentioned politics. There was quite a lot of politics as it was a race between uh, America and the USSR, uh, because the, the Soviets were doing better at first, and then there was we'll we'll put a man on the moon, and the Americans did. So, 1969, this is the most extraordinary thing—we've gone to the moon. Three years later, the last person to go to the moon, who's called Harrison Schmitt, uh, went to the moon, and that's it—we've stopped because it didn't lead anywhere. Just going to the moon turned out to be that was it. That was the that was the trip. Uh, people do all we could possibly. Build things on the moon or Mars, but we—we, we, it's really highly unlikely. Or we might find uh, aliens. Well, it's not happening. They're too far away, even if they exist. So that was the high point of excitement. I think the late '60s, early '70s, like like for music, it was the high point of uh, uh, pop music and uh, space travel. For
2: yeah, well, for Woodstock now. was happening just at the time that uh, they were stepping on the moon. Uh, I do believe, and uh, yeah, but it was it was the f- if you take all the politics out of it, you take the feats of endurance from um, um, from the great Russians who, who landed on the uh, well, land, what did land who did the first orbits, mm. the first man in space, first woman in space, very early first woman in space. Uh, you just got to remove all the politics of it and take the bravery of these people. Uh, and the, you know the computers were like the computers; they, they had the memory size like we get a little computer that does adding up that you put on a ruler these days. And yes. so it's just. It was, it was beautiful, and even though it was – because Kennedy pushed for it because Russia was so far ahead in his space race, it still counts. It still means something. It still furthered – it was a shining example of what humanity can do. And uh, for a brief moment, a lot of people around the world were saying, we are working together towards something. We are trying to improve – life for everyone and, that, and that's the only way forward this century the 21st century i believe is the coming of age of humanity and we're gonna this this century we will make it a farewell for everyone or i unfortunately think we're going to wipe ourselves off the planet so we've got these two futures mm. and i think the, the the people all the astronauts and all everyone in the international space station all about working together live together work together some shape or form learn as much can we learn from you can you learn from us this beautiful idea of humanity we can go forwards and try and make things better or there's this other day of lying in politics, attacking wars take things down uh, all the hellish things of humanity which come from certain leaders and if you think about it it's only about 10 leaders in the world that are dragging humanity down and probably nearly everyone else is trying to just move things forward so we just kind of <laughs> keep going forward this century will be the coming of age for us I all right,
1: well, well, you're, you're very optimistic in a variety of ways there but yeah there's 10 leaders that are going to, if you got rid of those they'd suddenly be 10 uh, wonderful people to take over i'm not i'm not sure about that but uh, uh, j- just uh, we're, uh, we are coming to the end of list of wonder but but we've we've strayed into politics there now you have pol- political ambitions i don't know where they are at the moment i think there was you were going to be mayor of london you're going to be an mp you're going to be prime minister you're going to be where 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 do your ambitions now
2: lie? I am pushing to be an MP. I was trying to be an MP in the last general election, and I'm hoping to be an MP in the next general election, and I will try very hard to get there and hope the people of the constituency I'm going for will elect me. So I'm very serious about it. I've said it since 2010, quite categorically. So I, uh, you haven't asked a question like that, but some people have said... So is this serious? Are you? Really, yes, I've said since twenty ten. How this is it twelve years now? I just yeah. I I'm, I go towards things quite slowly but deliberately. As you can see, my marathons are slow but deliberate. I get I get it done in the end. But I just don't believe that. You know, Boris Johnson got to be prime minister from lying upon lie upon lie upon lie, and Trump still floating around as a as lying balloon. It's just very weird. Uh, we seem to be heading, some of us, are, uh, those kind of leaders are saying, let's go back to the 1930s and try that again. And the rest of us saying, no, let's go forward to the 2030s and be more enlightened.
1: Well, I suppose you might trip up on the basis that, um, uh, you know, Boris Johnson was a, essentially a comedian. He's a, he likes gags, likes telling jokes, he appeared on the television. and we thought, Oh, that'd be nice. Let's have a comedian as the prime minister. And it did, it crashed and burned for for all sorts of reasons and they may you know the voters may think oh do we want a comedian uh, to be uh, our uh, member of parliament or prime minister that I'm just uh, suggesting that as a a possible harm that might have been done to you by uh, Boris Johnson.
2: Vladimir Zelensky.
1: Yes. Okay. So there you go. You've dealt with Uh, that. Have I answered you? Yeah. Yeah. Well oh elected.
2: Yeah. Yeah no it's been very strong very consistent. And um, it's not the jokes that, in the end, the Tory party itself uh, took out uh, Boris Johnson. The Tory party said, look, we will not allow a person running our, our party and our country to lie more than 5,721 times. They said <laughs> that's the line. It's a red flag. Yeah. <laughs> and you've crossed the 5,721 and yeah. that's it. And you're out. Yes. Um, 5,721 strikes and you're out. I think it <laughs> was the line that they said from the leader of the of the house and uh so that's it It just it was he was always lying on the next line we say, what about the last line oh god we gotta deal with this next line um and he's still trying to hang around there he's still hanging on barnacle boroughs um it's yeah but Brexit has happened yeah
1: i don't i don't want you this your seven wonders to just uh just to concentrate on uh, kicking a man now he's gone or or appears to be gone um you've you're done your you've set out your very interesting set of seven wonders and it's led to this uh, discussion so, so you may well be a member of parliament but is would, would that be the limit of your ambitions or would you hope to progress in the the labor party uh, to be leader of the labor party leader or, or or can you never say that as a politician you've always got to say well i'm happy in whatever role i've got at the moment and we'll see what comes uh, later on
2: i think you with the second part of your question you have covered it <laughs> It's just you, you You, know you can't go in there. You're an idiot if you're going and saying, oh yes, yes, yes. No, I want. I don't mind who's running the gig. I don't mind who's running the gig. I, I just want us to go more positive, more enlightened, more live and let live, make connections rather than break connections. Um, I want 7.8 billion people in the world to have a fair chance in life. So, but I'm not desperate for that thing, but I want to help. I like, I'm happy to be a team player. And I'm happy to come up with visions of, you know, coming out as trans back in, in 85, 37 years ago, I had a vision that surely there's a better place we can get to. What was that vision? If they'd say, Eddie, what is what is the plan? How do you see it all playing out? I, I didn't know, but I just thought there's something better than this. Um, and so, you know, learning languages and performing in, in style you say, it's it's a tricky thing. It is a very tricky thing. How did I do it? I'm improvising that. Improvisation en français. in auf Deutsch. Improvisation. And, you know, uh, that's, that's Spanish. Improvisation. That's, and, um, and I'm trying to do that in, in Spanish as well, but I don't know quite how it all plays out, but I go for it. I'm positive it's a, it's an open thing and i'm trying hard i'm doing open rehearsals in of, of hamlet in shakespeare and people are finding it intriguing so i will i will take the brickbats and people will shout horrible things at me and whatever but i'll keep going on because i'm trying to be positive and i want us all to do well you know for the we're for the many not for the few and that's that's what i'm going to keep fighting for
1: uh, eddie it's been uh, as usual fascinating to to talk to you and to listen to you um i am um, i have to choose the wonder of wonders from your list of seven the one which struck me is particularly wonderful, as you described it in the course of this uh, conversation, and uh, it's been a difficult one. But I think uh, I think I'll go with your final one, Neil Armstrong, because I think that does represent something of your optimism and determination and your aspirations to go from here uh, higher and uh, further, longer. Um, possibly slower sometimes but, but uh, the, um, I think that's that I think maybe sums you up even more than high heels or roundabouts uh, so Eddie uh, I'll, I'll select um, uh, Neil, Neil Armstrong as your, your wonder of wonders thank you so much for, for joining me on this podcast if you enjoyed listening to My 7 Wonders it would be wonderful if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform site or provider you found us on thank you very much for listening
0: My 7 Wonders with Clive Anderson is a Stack Production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network.